News Power Hour. Well, warm welcome. It's the 20th of October, 2021. We are well into spring now here in South Africa, certainly in Johannesburg. Uh, starting off, maybe you could even call it summer now, the way that the heat is growing every day. Uh, with me in our virtual studio, Justin Rowe Roberts and Jared Neves, my colleagues from Business, and of course, Claire Bardenhorst. I'm Alec Hogg, and it's my great pleasure to be hosting your hour of power this evening. Well, a couple of Cracking interviews coming up for you. Uh, Magnus Haystack is in Mauritius, and uh, he has given us some insight into what's going on on the island, where he says, as you will hear in just a little while, uh, is now crawling with South Africans and other tourists as well. Primary reason, they've managed to get 70% of the uh, people vaccinated. So they've reopened the economy in its entirety and things are starting to hum again. Uh, we also have a really good interview uh, with France Cronier, as promised last night. Uh, France went off to KwaZulu-Natal to go and have a look last week, this is, at the aftermath of the July riots and what's happening in the small towns there, whether they're starting to recover, and indeed what lessons we can learn from what happened at uh, well, our month of shame. I know it was only... Not only. It was 72 hours of total anarchy and many parts of KwaZulu-Natal, as you'll hear from him, have actually not recovered yet. We'll also be hearing about bulletproofing of cars. And this is a story that my colleague Jared Neves has been into. Jared, uh, you had a good interview that we'll be hearing a little later. Mm, very interesting that you touched on the KZN riots. Uh, Nicole Lowe and I from SVI Engineering actually spoke about that. He said there's been a demand in that province for armored vehicles. Not surprising. Uh, if you go through what the guys went through there, I have family who were in barricades. Uh, they say, interestingly enough, that the best prepared community by a long shot was the Muslim community who somehow had been fire, flying in heavy arms. Uh, maybe they flew in some mercenaries as well. But uh, perhaps next time around, Jared, they'll be set flying in some uh, armored vehicles or, or bulletproof cars. Is it a is it a, a, a big market in South Africa? Uh, well, it is certainly growing. Uh, as you'll hear later on, uh, there's more and more demand from private citizens, but uh, it's also growing in the, pri- uh, in the business sector too. And then uh, we close off our show tonight with Jaltech. Now, this is a really interesting uh, operation that is looking at cryptocurrencies and of course our cryptocurrency expert is justin Rowe roberts did you have fun talking to the Jeltech guys justin extremely interesting alec uh, cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency investment in south africa has been a major issue we know of the mti saga we know of africrypt the fsca the financial services watchdog of south africa has said that cryptocurrency investment is unregulated what Jeltech have done is that they've created a financial instrument in which you can get exposure to either Bitcoin, Ethereum, or a diversified basket of cryptocurrencies in a regulated manner. So it's a win-win for investors, and it's a win-win for financial advisors who can now advise on cryptocurrencies in a regulated space. So Jeltec have brought a solution to the people. Isn't that interesting? And it's just uh, uh, around, well, the same week that we see the first Bitcoin ETF launching on the New York Stock Exchange. And it, it had a good debut yesterday, up by 5%. Started, started high and went higher still. 
Exactly. Alec, as you said, Bitcoin is much like Transvaal rugby. When it's good, it's really good. And when it's bad, it's not so good. So we'll just see how that Bitcoin ETF plays out. But it's going to be very interesting to watch its progress. Said like a true Cape Tonian. Well, Jared, uh, let's get on to some other issues now. The FOMO factor. What have people been accessing on BizNews in our various platforms in the past 24 hours? So on our website, biznews.com, a column by Kathy Buckle titled Zim Dollar Now in Real Pedal, back on the slippery slope again, is popular with readers today, followed closely by Herman and Schaber to breathe fire into the city of Johannesburg and Johann Rupert's listed empire, Remgro, Richmond, and Reynet. On business, uh, business TV on YouTube, insider trading on the JSE is a big problem. Yesterday's flash briefing and Regulation 28 is shortchanging retirees are all among the most popular videos with our community members. And lastly, on Business Radio, on Spotify, yesterday's Power Hour, Herman Mashaba's interview with our editor, Alec Hogg, and Genogen CEO Stefano Marani on the creation of a spot market for Helium were the most listened to interviews on Business Radio. Bradrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Claire Bardnost and here are today's news headlines. The University of Cape Town Council has approved in principle a proposal to make COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory for both staff and students. This means that staff and students will need to provide acceptable proof of vaccination against COVID-19 in order to gain access to the campus. The policy is expected to apply from 1 January 2022. And while you may not be able to work or study without being vaccinated, you will still be able to vote. The Independent Electoral Commission of South Africa has reiterated that voters will not be expected to provide proof of vaccination to cast their ballots in the upcoming municipal elections. The IEC took to Twitter this week to quash rumours around a vaccination mandate, saying that vaccination is not linked to one's right to vote. South Africa's sixth round of municipal elections takes place on 1 November, with over 26 million citizens registered to vote. The election will go ahead despite several legal hurdles and health concerns surrounding the potential of a super-spreader event. Government's initial target of vaccinating 70% of the population by the end of 2021 is becoming increasingly unattainable, but while incentives are being contemplated, the IEC says it will not impose any mandate on voters. However, administering voluntary vaccines at voting stations may still be considered. Evergrande Group's deal to sell a majority stake in its property services unit has been put on hold, adding to the Chinese property developer's precarious position. According to Reuters, the embattled firm, which faces more than $300 billion in debt, was in talks to sell 51% of its stake in Evergrande Property Services to a smaller rival for around $2.6 billion. China's second-largest developer has missed multiple rounds of interest payments on its international bonds in the past weeks, and the deal could be the cash injection its parent company desperately needs. The reason for pausing the plan is not yet clear, but reports indicate Evergrande is waiting for China's regulatory approval. Thank you very much, Claire. Uh, Justin, will you bring us up to date now on the markets? 
The JSE All Share Index is slightly lower at 66,500. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 40 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 85 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 76 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,782 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is flat at $84.40 a barrel, and Bitcoin is trading near 925,000 rand a coin. In the financial news, retailer Pick and Pay says the civil unrest and restrictions on the sale of alcohol costed about 1.7 billion rand in lost sales in its first half, marring what was otherwise a strong start to its 2022 financial year. Group turnover rose 4.1% to 46 billion rand in Pick and Pay's sixth month, ending on August 29, but 212 stores, a tenth of the group space, were hit by looting and destruction in July, with second quarter sales falling 0.7%. Civil unrest in July resulted in a loss of about 1 billion rand in sales, 600 million rand in stock losses, and 60 million rand in increased supply chain costs, the group said on Wednesday, while the group's liquor business lost 55 trading days, costing it about 800 million rand in sales. Pick and Pay's two largest distribution centers in KwaZulu-Natal were looted of all stock and suffered considerable damage to infrastructure. At the height of the unrest, the group closed an additional 551 stores to protect staff and customers. South Africa's largest sectional title developer, Baldwin Properties, says operating activity has steadily recovered to pre-pandemic levels with robust demand in South Africa for apartments, helping grow group profits by almost half in its six months to end August. Group revenue rose 41% to 1.3 billion rand to end August, still down 7% from before COVID-19, but Baldwin said its recovery was pleasing and sustained demand from clients gave it confidence in the resilience of its brand. Tell me about Baldwin. Uh, after hearing the exciting story at uh, the Biz News conference, I think it was uh, six months ago, not the most recent one, the one before, where Pete Fullion said that he he gets these uh, these twigs that he puts into a bunch, and some of them really performed, like Avenge, uh, Lewis Stores. Uh, some of them, however, not done so well, and Baldwin is one of those. Were you? Did you see enough in the results? to make you confident that those who did invest in Borwin should be staying with it? Alec, I haven't had too close a look at the results. From a high level, the results look promising. They are a sectional title developer. They're not a, a, a normal REIT, which means that they uh, develop properties and there seems to be a lot of demand for apartments, first-time buyers in around the million rand mark to 1.5 billion. And that's where the demand's coming from. And as a result, their results seem to have come up to pre-pandemic levels relatively quickly. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, October 20th, and this is your FT News Briefing. China is pressuring McDonald's to help with the launch of its new digital currency, and extreme weather, like flooding, could seep into the multi-trillion dollar U.S. municipal bond market. Plus, Austria's former chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, used to be seen as a beacon of hope, a favorite son-in-law. Then came a scandal. And Kurtz is no longer this kind of favorite son-in-law. He's a bit of a kind of, you know, ruthless, sometimes foul-mouthed political operator. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. 
China's central bank is getting ready to launch the world's first big digital currency, and it's trying to use the upcoming Olympic Games to help with the rollout. The FT reports that Beijing is pressuring one of the largest Olympic sponsors, McDonald's, to expand digital renminbi payments at its restaurants across the country before the Beijing Winter Olympics in February. McDonald's is already piloting digital renminbi payments at its locations in Shanghai, but China wants the hamburger chain to expand the pilot across the country. McDonald's declined to say whether it was under pressure from Beijing. A person familiar with the situation said Visa, an Olympic sponsor, and Nike, a U.S. team sponsor, were also facing similar pressure. Neither of those companies had any comment for the FT. Hurricane Ida pummeled the U.S. Gulf Coast earlier this year. Dozens of people were killed, and several states were hit by flash flooding. As storms like Ida become more common, they could affect the municipal bond market. Bonds are one of the ways cities pay for infrastructure, and a new study shows that U.S. infrastructure is at a greater risk of flooding compared to previous estimates. Here's the FT's U.S. Capital Markets correspondent, Kate Duguid. This group called First Street Foundation put out research last week that shows that about a quarter of all U.S. infrastructure is at risk of what they call operational flooding, which means that it would become non-operational if flooded. Some of the states in the worst shape were places like Louisiana, Florida, West Virginia, but the likes of New York, California, Connecticut were all up there too. In some of the most at-risk cities, places like New Orleans, the share of infrastructure with operational risk was basically 100%. That's incredible, Kate. Um, so how would flooding affect a city's ability to borrow or manage the, the debt it already has? So there are a number of different ways that this could affect the municipal debt market. The first is that like, there are municipal bonds that are issued to pay for a particular project. And that project may be dependent on um, revenue. So for example, you raise money to pay for a hospital. And in order to pay the investors on that bond, in order to pay off that bond, you have to earn a certain amount of money through the hospital. If that hospital is taken out by a flood, the source of revenue is taken with it. It might be rebuilt. It might not. Um, that's one of the most direct ways. The sort of more indirect way, but I think the much more dangerous issue is that Natural disasters can drive people away, can drive businesses away, and lower the value of existing property. So it, therefore, it um, can really shrink the tax base of a city or a state, um, which is another uh, of the main ways that muni bonds are paid off. Uh, all of this also means that their credit risk, so the amount of money that they have to pay to borrow, that that could go up because they're seen as riskier borrowers. All this is a relatively new development seeing that municipal bonds have always been kind of a safe haven for investors, right? Is that changing? I don't think it's changed yet, but you're absolutely right. Municipal bonds typically have long maturities. So they mature in, in 15 to 30 years on average. And that's a lot of time for something to go wrong. And so uh, some of their safe haven status could be jeopardized by the fact that, you know, these natural disasters are getting worse and more frequent uh, at a pretty rapid clip. Kate Duguid is the FT's U.S. Capital Markets Correspondent. Now to Austria and the spectacular political downfall of the country's former Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz. In dieser schwierigen Zeit sollte 
That's the 35-year-old leader in his resignation speech a week and a half ago. He was accused of using taxpayer money to bribe media organizations. Kurtz denies all this, but as Sam Jones, our correspondent in Vienna, says, a barrage of text messages came out during the scandal. And they, they paint quite an ugly, cynical picture of the workings of government. And, and Kurtz is no longer this kind of favorite son-in-law. He's a bit of a kind of ruthless political operator. Sam joins me now to talk more about it. Hey, Sam. Hi there. So, Sam, can you remind me of the details of the allegation? And, and we should mention that Kurtz hasn't been charged yet. The central allegations are that some of his key allies in, in positions of influence in the Austrian government used taxpayers' money four years ago or so to illicitly buy adverts in Austrian newspapers in exchange uh, for positive coverage of Kurtz, who was then Austria's foreign minister. Um, that coverage was mostly polls. Now, those polls might have been accurate, but they might have been based on small sample sizes, or they might have been sort of slightly skewed towards him. But the crucial thing is that they were only included, according to prosecutors' allegations, in newspaper coverage, because those newspapers uh, were being paid secretly by Austrian government ministries. So why is this all so dramatic? Kurtz was this dashing young pathbreaker, the guy to shake up Austria's political order. What was it? There were very high expectations that he would change things. And, and it's very important to remember that, you know, until the coronavirus hit, um, he was, you know, Austria's, possibly Austria's most successful politician of the last few decades. You know, he was regarded by his, his kind of opponents and also the people that supported him as all, this almost like political saint who, who couldn't do much wrong. And he did something radical. He actually took the far right into government. And for a lot of conservative politicians across the EU, there was sort of a sense that actually, you know, maybe this is what we should be doing. Maybe the way that we diffuse this problem, this, this popular anger about immigration is actually by taking on board some of the concerns and not giving the far right the fuel of being uh, in opposition. Um, so he was regarded as this kind of very clever, um, new radical, almost a sort of center or, or moderate conservative radical. So this has really shaken things up in Austria, Sam. But how is this being seen more broadly in the EU? I think it, it comes at a slightly tricky time for the EU. In Brussels at the moment is fighting a number of fires related to the rule of law in Europe. You know, obviously, there's an ongoing kind of animus between Brussels and Hungary and the regime of Viktor Orban. But more recently, there is this um, huge issue in Poland um, over the enforcement of, of EU law in, in Poland. And now you add Austria into this mix and it kind of begins to look like in Central Europe, there is this real kind of rule of law issue. I mean, I hasten to add that the Austrian government has, has certainly not changed its stance towards the EU um, as a result of this. But but the sort of picture it paints is that in, in Central Europe, there is a problem that's worrying because Austria is a small but very important little Central European state that really is culturally and socially at the heart of what the EU would like to think of itself as being. And if this state is also seeing distrust in its democracy and in its judiciary spread and politicians uh, willing to criticise those institutions heavily, um, then that perhaps says something really worrying about the state or the health of democracy and of political discourse in the EU. 
Sam Jones covers Austria for the Financial Times. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. WeWork is finally set to list on the public markets. The co-working company tried to go public two years ago. Back then, the high-flying company was valued at $47 billion. But a lot has happened since then. WeWork's charismatic founder, Adam Newman, was ousted, new management slashed cost, and the firm's basically been humbled. It's still losing billions of dollars, though. But yesterday, shareholders at a blank check company called BoX Acquisition approved a $9 billion merger with WeWork. The co-working company will start trading on the NASDAQ stock exchange this Thursday under the ticker WE. Before we go, we want to let you know that we were nominated for a People's Lovey Award for folks in the U.S. That's the European version of the Webbies. And we were nominated for Best News and Politics Podcast. Now, we love what we do and we don't need an award, but it would be really nice to get one. And we're hoping you could help us out by voting for us online. We'll link to the Lovey Awards website in our show notes, and I'll tweet out the link for my handle on Twitter. I'm at Mark Filipino. And thank you so much for your support. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Magnus Haystick, this is Wednesday, and it's time for our fireside chat. Although I guess we should rather call it a beachside chat, Magnus, given where you are right now in Mauritius. It's been about two years since uh, we've been allowed to come to Mauritius, and I must tell you, the place is crawling with South Africans. The weather is fantastic. The beer is ice cold. And, um, I mean, the golf courses are beckoning, and it's absolutely wonderful to be back and to see what has happened during the COVID period, you can see more uh, roads, more shopping centers, more developments. And uh, there's a report released just today about how Mauritius is just streaking ahead of South Africa in terms of GDP per capita, uh, which is a very important economic indicator for a country. So, yeah, it's very nice to be back. Missing South Africa, but uh, loving to be in Mauritius. Why did they manage, or how did they manage to expand so rapidly during a period when most of the world was in lockdown? Did they not have uh, severe lockdowns in Mauritius? They were affected by the lockdown. Tourism, no doubt, affected very, very badly. So their GDP per capita, or their economic GDP, took a big, big smack uh, last year. It was on par with ours, down about 8% mainly because they didn't allow any tourists in. So they took a decision, closed the borders, and, and, and the, the tourism and the hotel industry took a heck of a knock. But now that about 90% of Mauritians have had the first injection and about 70, the second one, they felt it safe enough to open the borders. And boy, are, are the South Africans and also the French pouring into Mauritius. And, 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 and it's good to see people back to normality when you speak to the local Mauritians they are so relieved because you know, their jobs were on the line the income was on the line like in South Africa and it's just nice to, things to, to returning to normality yeah it's a big story that uh, vaccinations if you can get a high percentage of your population vaccinated then you can get back to normal I suppose the problem is that uh, when you try and force people to get vaccinated they immediately react 
in the way that you'd expect them to, if you're thinking rationally, that they, they don't want to be vaccinated just because you're forcing them to do it. But anyway, those are, are issues that we have to deal with. I guess Mauritius is showing you what can happen if you do have a program where presumably the, the government has managed to convince lots of people to, to get the jab. Well, I would say that more than convince them, there was a bit of force in the sense that if you don't get a vaccination, you know, you, um, you just won't be allowed back to your job or whatever, you're, especially in the tourism industry. They had to make sure any, everybody who works in tourism was vaccinated. So they all they all vaccinated so that there's no risk of contaminating people who are coming to the island. Mm. Yeah, you can understand that uh, from from that perspective as well. Anyway, that's a that's a huge subject. But Magnus, uh, as far as Mauritius as an investment is concerned, if it's crawling with South Africans, is this a little bit like uh, we we've spoken recently of this emigration to the Cape? Uh, is it becoming a, a a destination now for South Africans who perhaps want to live in a growing economy? They want to live in a safe economy. They want to live in a safe environment. And I think when people ask me what is the main attraction of Mauritius for me personally is the safety. There is absolute law and order. Nobody on the island owns a gun. Nobody on the island owns a gun, Alec. And that is fantastic to know. Only the police have guns and they very rarely take them out to use them. They just don't need to use them. I think the murder rate is about four or five per year. There's no hijackings because you can't really take the car. So it's very nice to live in a normal society where you can walk at night, you can drive at night, cycle, whatever you do, your children can do it. Secondly, of course, the tax rates have been made attractive for South Africans or anybody else to set up companies, trusts, foundations that will be taxed. They will still be taxed. It's not tax-free. But you can structure your affairs that you can get away with a tax rate of 15% in most cases. There's no exchange control. Another thing that attracts a lot of people. And lastly, there's no state duty. And I think all things combined, it makes it very attractive uh, option for South Africans to consider, uh, especially with what's going on in South Africa, the, the enormous squeeze on taxes and um Many, many South Africans are taking the step and setting up base in Mauritius or retiring in Mauritius. In fact, the, the Mauritian government made it very, very clear that they want, would like a, a certain number of South Africans to come and retire in Mauritius. I think the number I heard was 30,000 because they bring in money. They bring in purchasing power. They will pay their VAT and stuff like that and um, add to the building and construction boom. So that's all part of the government policy. And I was just made aware today that there's a very major uh, dispensation or group of politicians, including the Minister of Finance, heading to, towards South Africa to go and drum up investment opportunities. So um, a lot of people are setting up businesses, many, many more than I thought, because people contact me and say, oh, I'm on the island, did you know? I don't want to mention names, but... Very prominent names are quietly setting up a base in, in Mauritius. Well, I'm sure that if that uh, group of politicians were to go to KwaZulu-Natal, they'd probably have a, a very receptive audience, given what happened recently. I actually spoke earlier uh, today, Magnus, with uh, Franz Cronier, uh, who's just done a trip about, around KZN, and he said that it's we we kind of seeing a country that's breaking down into enclaves, 
where the state has been absent in certain areas. And it's, it's almost like Mauritius has got the best of all worlds. It's small. It's business-related. Uh, it's got a beautiful climate. And as you say, peaceful as well. You can understand the appeal. But just getting back to South Africa as a as a uh, an, an indicator that you use uh, is the foreign purchases of South African bonds. I remember we were talking about this a little while ago, and there seems to be some confusion around this because the JSC's chief executive Leila Faree said uh, in August that there had been net purchases for the year of something like 45 billion rands, whereas the weekly report that the JSE puts out says there were net sales of 60 billion. Now, there's a 100 billion rand difference there, which is, is confusing lots of people. Now the JSE is saying, actually, there's been net purchases for the year. I know you follow this thing carefully, the, the bond purchases, because it's such an important indicator. What are you making of all this? Well, it is one of the most important indicators, not only the bond sales but also the equity sales and i mean for many many years since 2017 we've noticed a a very substantial outflow on both equities and bonds and these stats as you quite rightly say come from the jsc they've been used by every economist in south africa including mike sushler investec people they've all been using the figures that the jsc been giving them and sending it out to their clients and to the rest of the world and it showed very clearly there's a big, big outflow of money from South Africa. So a month ago, uh, in, during a webinar, Leila Fari mentions, well, that's not exactly correct. We've actually had an inflow. So Business Day jumped on this and said, you have to explain this to the market because this is a very, very important indicator. And I saw that the Business Day editor has now written his second editorial on this and says, we need certainty about the numbers because we base our investment recommendations on those numbers, and the rest of the world does too. So I think it's a good point that it's been driven to a point so that the JSC can explain this massive discrepancy between the numbers that you and I and everybody else has been using for years, and suddenly this another figure jumps up, which is a very positive one, says, no, there's actually been a net inflow. Well, we need someone to explain why they keep on sending those numbers every week saying, Net buying, net selling, and then the year, the, the total year to date, which I follow religiously. And now we don't know. So it's, uh, I think the JSC does owe the investment community an explanation. And, and hopefully she's correct that there is an inflow into our bond market. And maybe that explains why the RAND has remained remarkably strong the last five years, um, relative to global markets. So, Let's hear what they say. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Are you still going to be using it as an indicator? Well, one has to qualify it now. And, and, and so far, it seems to be only on the bond side, not the equity side. So the equity side I still use very much so, which, which to my mind is one of the most important indicators of the direction of the JSC because when the, the foreigners are selling in the way that they're selling, it's not just random selling, been selling consistently since 2017. And I think the total I added up the other day is 650 billion net outflow out of our markets. That explains to a large extent why our market has been such a poor investment. The foreigners are pulling money out of our bond market, no doubt about it. The bond market could be different where the bond market is used as a proxy because it is a very 
very large and a very deep market where you can move massive amounts of money in and out without upsetting liquidity and 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 so forth. So the bond market is a playground for the big pension funds and the hedge funds play, and they make huge amounts of money. Not as sexy as the equity market. When you talk to normal people on, on about bonds and the bond market, their eyes glaze over. They can't relate to it. We don't have star bond fund managers, and it's difficult to explain the bond market. So we tend to focus on the on the on the fund managers and the actual shares. This one going up, that one going down. So the retail sector is largely out of the bond market, but it's the large institutions are the big players, and I'm quite sure that they are, are having nice little chats with the JSC and saying, guys, we need better information because there's a, a, a big amount of money at stake. How does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables? giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business, business banks on us. Standard Bank, it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Dr. Franz Grenier, a PhD in scenario planning, former chief executive of the Institute for Race Relations, uh, a deep thinker and a man who's very popular in the business community, KwaZulu-Natal. It's my homeland, but I haven't been to where the tacky hit the tar outside of the major cities. You did that recently. Why? So four days last week, we, 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 we talked to communities all around the country. Uh, so it's not an unusual thing. And we uh, during the lockdown, you couldn't do that, of course. It was very frustrating. We've always enjoyed the fact that we could we could talk in sort of dingy town halls as well as at the top of the towers in Santa. And and I, I, I probably preferred the one over the other. And uh, we were invited to just go and have a look at what happened in Natal. Uh, Helen Sussman, who was our matriarch, is our matriarch, she used to say to the young analyst, go and see. Get out from behind your desk. Go and walk around in the real world. So we just went to see. It was rural Natal, did the whole thing. Uh, uh, spoke to to a, to a number of groups and, and communities about uh, events. We, we called it, we went to tour the battlefields of Natal, but the contemporary ones, and not the historic. You know, you can now do two tours in Natal, where the, the, the Lord Chelmsford, and you can do where the, where the smoke is still rising kind of off the, the rubble. Just absolutely fascinating and amazing. Lots of insights from it. One is how many people said how it brought communities together. You know, the state evacuated itself from parts of Natal. wasn't really present. I mean, the, the definition of a modern state is a monopoly on the use of violence in a society. We, we gave that to the state as man when we emerged from a state of anarchy. And when that no longer applies, the state no longer exists. And in large parts of Natal, the state ceased to exist. It was terrible and destructive and awful. But where you found a town that was still standing, relatively intact, that community would tell you we were able to stand together. Black, white, farmers, taxis, traditional leaders, local businessmen, whatever it was. And for a moment, all that kind of stuff that divides South Africans, particularly where the politicians get involved and sort of screw everything up, the politicians weren't there. And these communities came together. So there is, a, a, I think, a, the most striking thing 
is that totally missed in the mainstream is these communities who said for the first time we actually really came together to save our town or, or, or region. And, and that's a very positive thing, I would think. Where exactly did you go in, in oh, we did the We did the whole story, Alec. We started in, then we flew, where did we fly into Durban? And we went up the north coast and went all the way down to the bottom and we ended up near the Free State as well. And we drove it. So, so you could actually see these, these, these towns and communities. Some destroyed. Some were wrecked. Absolutely. I mean, looked like the Blitz in London with burnt bricks in the main drag, which is all that was left. And uh, the sense there was that here you had a community that struggled to stand together, was unsure about what to do, you know, wondered whether someone would come and help. And, and they suffered terribly as a consequence. A, a third thing that emerged, one, there was this very positive story to it. Secondly, is, is where communities couldn't stand together, there was destruction. I mean, there was real, real damage. A third thing that came out of it is that the state doesn't seem to have returned to Natal after the riots. I mean, I'm sure in parts there, there, is, there is a government, but, but in practice, some communities are now struggling with how to make this absence of the state, how to deal with the permanency of the absence of the state. The idea that no one is coming from Pretoria to fix the water or the potholes no one's going to send a better station commander. If the police station's deeply corrupt, which, which some appear to be, when we were told of policemen who took off their uniforms to, to loot the shop next to the police station, quickly before the, the, the other looters could arrive. If you're, if you're that community, what do you do now? Because a vacuum has been created, and nature abhors a vacuum. That's true of politics, it's true, true of anything. And that vacuum is now going to be filled by the most powerful actors in those communities. And if you, if you don't play a role in that, if, as a chamber of commerce, let's say, if you're just going to wait for Pretoria to return one day, which it probably won't, forever, and not, not this administration, then you, you, need to start, you need to start thinking very creatively. And there are downsides in that too, of course, but there are potential upsides that you can now as a community in the absence of the political divisions that kept you apart, uh, uh, come together and build what, what we've long, we first wrote it up in a book in 2014, I think. We spoke about an enclave future for South Africa where the state would retreat, would just weaken, and you would have to start appropriating the functions of the state. And I think Natal, I mean, as a consequence of these riots, has gone way down that road really fast. And now you've got communities struggling with how to, how, how do you do this? You know, what, what, if you're the Chamber of Commerce, what do you do? I mean, there's no government to talk to. The politicians are absent. You, you've got to go to the, to, to the other power brokers and start to say, you know, chaps, this is where we're at. And how can we work together? Um, are any, are any towns doing that? Did you come across yes, any there are, there are. Uh, success stories? I mean, some stories? are very, of course, sensitive about what they're doing and how they're doing. And, and But absolutely, there are real examples. And I think for people who weren't there, I mean, I wasn't there, to see it on the ground. I mean, you got out. I mean, you, you lived a middle-class suburban life. You were a banker or something. And before you knew it, you were manning a barricade 
you know it's it's i mean it is amazing and and just overnight and i think those relationships in some places could continue although the risks and long-term implications i think are something we're still trying to understand but on a at a somewhat extreme level those those decisions now having to be made in the tell are foretelling what i think many people across the country are going to come to contend with in years ahead because on on it's it's very quick now in the tell but on a macro level the south african state is retreating the the budget deficit is such that the state can no longer execute its functions properly even if it was efficiently governed and, and non-corruptly we haven't practiced run out of electricity that comes from from eskom i think if you if you spoke to 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 the people who run eskom now they might tell you that eskom could be fixed but it even if it's fixed it cannot be the solution to south africa's long term energy demands so you've run out of you've run out of of money the, the budget deficit into the present still has only been eclipsed thrice since the formation of the union of south africa that was in the 80s that was in before smatz's defeat in 48 and that was in the first world war so big deficits bring about changes of government we've run out of money we've run out of electricity i think the government has run out of intellect to with which to to get itself out of the hole i mean the the policy offerings are not able what what's called reform is, is not anything of the sort I'm Jared Neves for Biz News. Once the reserve of VIPs, politicians and celebrities, bulletproofing is slowly becoming more mainstream in South Africa. The high crime rate and ongoing hijackings have seen South Africans take their safety into their own hands. I'm chatting with Nicole Lowe of SVI Engineering to gain insight into the process of bulletproofing a motor car. How is it done? Who is doing it and why? Before we dive in, Could you please tell the listeners a bit about your role at SVI? Yes, Jared, thanks for the opportunity. So, I'm Nicole Lowe, I'm the business development manager of SVI. So, in short, I need to make sure that the factory is full of vehicles being armored, looking for new business, but uh, the way things are going in the country at the moment, business is coming to us. Why is something like bulletproofing necessary? Yes, yeah, so we live in a country with quite violent crime and I don't even have to bring up all the statistics of hijackings and murders and all those kind of things. We all live uh, through it on a daily basis. And uh, normally is if you're a private person, you're safe at home where you live and uh, when we all used to go to the office, you're safe in the office, but in between you're not safe. Um so you know, for instance hijackings is one of the the highest crime rates in the world in our country. So you want to be safe if you're traveling and that's what uh, armored vehicle will provide you with. Um as I always say, um I drive a lot of armored vehicles because of my role, especially if you're uh, driving in in dangerous areas. Now that sometimes I drive an unarmored vehicle, I almost feel naked. So if you drive an armored vehicle, you can stop at red traffic lights at night, you can take the shortcut home, you can keep your family safe. even the uh, like brick throwing and all those kind of uh, violent actions that can happen it won't impact on your safety a brick from a from a breach for example will just bounce off the windscreen still damage it but it won't come into the cabin and then obviously your ballistic protection is what it's all about 
And uh, obviously, we need to use very special materials, very special techniques to be able to provide ballistic protection against handguns, which we call the B4 level. And then the B6 level is for your, your highest civilian level that you can have without having any special permits. And that protects against your AK-47 R1 assault rifles. Have you seen an uptick for private use with people coming in wanting to bulletproof their family cars? So SVR has been running since 2004. And we've got a military arm, we've got a security arm, and then a civilian arm. And since 2004, we can definitely see a rise in the need for armored vehicles. And uh, currently, we know what happened in KZN with the riots, riots and so on. It's been a definite spike. People are feeling unsafe on the roads. They need that extra protection. So from a, a civilian side, yes, we've seen a lot more inquiries regarding how much it will cost to armor a vehicle. Can I do this vehicle? Can I do that vehicle? How long will it take? And uh, a lot of uh, private individuals with the money, because it is an expensive exercise, they opt for that extra level of security. And when people will ask me now, is South Africa so bad that you need an armored vehicle to drive around in? So think about armoring as an extra level of safety. Your modern vehicles already got um, electronic stability controls, got airbags, it got crumple zones, got all those uh, safety features, which you hope you will never use. And something like armoring is just an extra level of safety, which is quite relevant in South Africa, which you hope you'll also never use, but it's nice to have. What type of customer is choosing to opt for this? Okay, so we spoke about civilian markets, so that will definitely be your high-end individuals, your business people. Uh, we get a lot of inquiries as well, people visiting South Africa from other countries. Uh, there's some business contracts that will state that uh, when they come over to South Africa, they're not allowed to drive around without an armored vehicle. So, therefore, SVR has got a rental division as well to supply armored vehicles on short the more of short time frames. Um, but yeah, then obviously the security market is massive. Um, if you look at our country now, we all know about cash in transit. It makes the social media all the time the, the hits on 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 cash in transit vehicles that we see often. But what people miss is that there's a lot of other valuables being transported that's also targeted at the moment in South Africa. Things like uh, trucks uh, moving cell phones, for example. We've seen trucks um, delivering meat that's been hijacked. So you almost can't send anything out on the road that's valuable without having support. And at the moment, the support vehicles that's most popular is your buckies. For example, your Toyota Hilux, your Ford Ranger buckies. Those are very popular for security services to, to, to use because they're robust. They can carry the extra massive armoring. Um, and yeah, so when you have something out on the road, a truck with valuables, you'll see behind it is a support vehicle. Normally it will be an armored bucky with some guards in them uh, supporting that load uh, to its destination. Unfortunately, we're getting to that stage where it's definitely needed. So. That security uh, is the biggest market for armored vehicles. Then you also get your mining industry where you have to uh, mining patrols around mining sites um, with the Zama Zamas being so active at the moment and they're all heavily armed. Uh, you can't send your, your guards out to patrol a mine area with if they're not in, a, in an armored vehicle. And that goes for any sensitive infrastructure. If you, if you need to protect any sensitive infrastructure, you need an armored vehicle to drive around in because uh, lives are important. So that's the nice thing about SVI as well. It's a feel-good factor because we see so many vehicles coming back that was under attack. And uh, to speak to the guards that, that lived through the attack and just realize you actually saved this guy's life is incredible. July, the riots that gripped parts of Gauteng and KZN. 
uh, and you said that obviously you've seen an uptick in interest. Is that mostly from a business point of view or have you also seen private individuals who thought, no, I don't want to live through this again. Let's rather get something safer. I would say both, um, but obviously uh, business owners, they were really heavily affected by this riots and I think everyone had a big scare as to what can happen to your business if you leave it unprotected. Um, so business owners, yeah, definitely big uh, inquiries that came through. We actually uh, sold quite a few vehicles now recently to the KZN area and it actually led us to develop a brand new add-on let's say to your armored bucky which is a hydraulic scraper up front so you can go to our youtube channel you can go on social media you can see how a hydraulic scraper works that fits uh, in front of a land cruiser 79 because what happens during the riots is there's obviously barricades on the road so there's no point you having an armored vehicle that protect you but you can't actually go through these barricades uh, because the roads are blocked so we've developed a scraper that fits like a bumper, but it's a V-shaped unit. And then hydraulically, you can lower it from inside the cabin to, to, to the ground. And then it sort of scrapes all the obstacles away. If it's burning tires or rocks or whatever is used to, to bolt these barricades. And that sort of clears a path for security services, medical personnel, um, people that need to get to critical locations to actually go through. So, that is a product that's now released and it's really because of the riots that happened in KZN and uh, inquiries from our clients that say they need this. How much does something like this cost? I'm sure some of our listeners have been thinking uh, about this and, and are just very curious about how much this would cost. Yes, yeah, so I always like to use the, the Bucky example. We obviously do all vehicles, also luxury sedans and SUVs and so on, but the Buckies are so popular in South Africa. But let's use a double cab, for example. So if you first of all talk about discrete armor, discrete means that the vehicle will look like the one from the showroom floor when it's done. So if, if it's a B4 vehicle and uh, we use 21 millimeters of armored glass, Kevlar for most of the body areas, it's quite light, only at 280 kilograms. You're looking at about 432,000 X watt for a double cab bucky conversion to B4. If you need B6 protection, which is your AK-47 R1 protection, then we use 38 millimeters of armored glass and we have to use special steel armor plating for all the body areas. We add about 650 kilograms to the vehicle. We have to operate suspension, but then you're looking at 655,000 X watt for a conversion like that. Now, if that sounds very expensive, obviously a lot of uh, these uh, materials are imported. If you need something that's cheaper, so your security company, we have our own what we call stop conversion too. It's sort of a security kit that you bolt in. Uh, you can call it a cash in transit type solution because it's a flat glass. You'll have a split windscreen. At least the double, old double door system, security people out there will know it used to be a double door system. When you climb in, that's removed now. The armor is inside the door. But that's a lot cheaper, so it's not as discreet as the one I've discussed before, but for example, B6 double cab bucky, you're looking to convert it around 319,000 X watt. That was Nickel Lowe of SVI Engineering. I'm Jared Neves for Biz News. For great wines at the right price, delivered direct to your door anywhere in the country, Look no further than the BizNews Wine Shop. Go directly to www.biznewsshop.com 
for a quick, easy solution to curated wines with the Biz News community front of mind. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is co-founder of Geltech, Gaurav Naya. Before we get into the topic of conversation, which will center around cryptocurrencies, Gaurav, could you please provide some context and background on the products offered by Geltech? Sure thing. So um, Geltech is an alternative investment management company. Uh, we have two major services. One is we do fund administration for fund managers. Uh, companies that manage money, we do all their back office and reporting, etc., compliance. And then our, our, our business that faces a lot of uh, retail customers is we invest into alternative assets. So these are not your usual listed equities or listed bonds or money markets. Um, we had a, quite a bit of success with Section 12J, which was a tax incentive that ran until 2021. Uh, we manage about 1.6 billion rand of the public's money in that space. Geltech offers cryptocurrency investors the first regulated cryptocurrency investment in South Africa, which provides investors exposure to either Bitcoin, Ethereum, or diversified basket of cryptocurrencies. Magnus Haystack, one of our regular contributors on the Business Power Hour, has said for months that he cannot advocate for cryptocurrencies because it's seen as an unregulated product by the FSCA. However, Geltech has done this in a regulated manner. Could you please explain how and why this works? Sure thing, Justin. So I guess the fact that this is an unregulated asset in South Africa um, means that for many investors, they can't turn to their usual trusted advisor. The space is a complicated space and investors don't have the time while keeping their job, etc., to spend hours and hours researching and understanding it. Normally, they go to their financial advisor. But since the FSCA or FISCA, the regulator, hasn't yet created a, a license category for, the, for financial advisors who normally do this due diligence and research, a lot of advisors can't actually advise on it just yet. FISCA said they're going to uh, do this at some point. But until then, the space is growing and many investors, they want to get into the space. Advisors are in the position where they either have to turn investors away and say, do it yourself um, because they can't, they can't advise on it um, or take some kind of risk by advising on this in an unregulated way. Investors, they're also left in quite, a, in quite an awkward position. They have to go to firms that don't have any regulations. And we've seen some of the crazy scams of MTI and AfriCrypt. Um, you know, or they've got to try and just do it themselves. Um, and so we want to present a solution to the public. And so the way we did this is we created a public RF company. Now, this doesn't mean that's listed, but it is public. And that means that there's extra levels of governance and transparency and reporting that we have to do. Um, and we issued a prospectus, which was approved by SIPC. The other thing is that we, we made these investments into debentures. Now, debentures are just unsecured debt investments. But the important point about this is that financial advisors, they can advise on debentures. And we have a legal opinion from a leading law firm that says so. However, they don't just need to have the relevant license to advise on debentures. They should have some working knowledge of cryptocurrencies because that's, of course, the underlying uh, exposure the investor will have. So as you mentioned, we've got three investments right now that are all in debentures or notes, as we call them. There's a Bitcoin note. An investor buying the Bitcoin note, uh, they can get advice through an intermediary service to their financial advisor. It's in this regulated investment of this public investment. Uh, and they just get exposure to the Bitcoin price. 
There's an ether note, which gives the same exposure to ether price. And finally, there's a note which provides an index, a diversified uh, basket of currencies. Um, that, and these are the largest uh, cryptocurrencies. What are some of the reasons why an investor should have exposure to cryptocurrencies? And if one does gain exposure to cryptocurrencies, uh, should they rather go the Bitcoin, Ethereum route? Or as you said earlier, go the more diversified basket? Yeah, so I, I guess that the, the main reason investors should be investing to crypto is that the, the blockchain technology that, uh, that, that, that was created with Bitcoin has amazing applications. And it's totally going to revolutionize um, a, lot of, a lot of the things we do. So I'll just talk about some of these. I mean, one is that these blockchain networks are totally decentralized. And that means that it makes them robust or immune from hacking. Um, for someone to hack, they have to hack millions of computers around the world because they're decentralized. Um, the other thing about these blockchain networks is that they're very robust. They just keep going 24-7. Um, a few a few months ago, we had the JSE having its largest trading day, and then the next day they opened late, um, and that's you know s still kudos to them because they are running on an old system. But with blockchain, even with Ether or Bitcoin dropping 50% in July, huge volumes went through, it didn't go down for a second, um, and so that's one of the advantages of the technology. And then there's these automated uh, transactions called decentralized finance where you have exchanges and banks and insurance companies running in a totally automated way, no humans, just code, um, and that the whole system involves no trust. You have different people that are all independent from each other and they validate each other's transactions, etc. So if you imagine all of these uses, and there are many, many more uses, um, many are going to be discovered, um, the technology is going to revolutionize a lot of things. Just like, it's like being in 1995 when the internet is about to take over the world and being able to then allocate money into part of your portfolio into this new technology and enjoy all of that growth. Now, you asked about, you know, should one invest into Bitcoin, Ether, or maybe something more diversified? Um, when investing in, you know, Bitcoin is, is the oldest cryptocurrency, often seen as the safest for that reason. Um, Ether has the largest adoption and has many, most of these uses that we've talked about and also quite an old and robust technology. Um, however, um, potentially you want, you want exposure as an investor to quite a wide variety in this space. And I'll, and I'll talk a bit about that. So the thing is that a lot of, firstly, how much should you allocate in your portfolio? Uh, and the thing is that um, because it's highly volatile, that's actually a benefit. It's, not, it's, not, it's actually not a bad thing. Um, because that means that even if you allocate a small amount, it can still add a lot of returns to your portfolio. So, you know, let's say you allocate 2% of your portfolio, even if it went to zero, and I think we're way past the days of that even being possible, it means that 98% of your portfolio is untouched and it hardly has any impact on your portfolio over a three, four, five year period. However, because it's highly volatile, it can go up a huge amount. And we've seen these kind of 10, 20, 50, 100,000 X returns. And if a tiny portion of your portfolio does that kind of return, comes to provide 50, 60, 70% of your returns in your portfolio, uh, if not more. And so I call these asymmetric returns, where you can allocate a small amount and still get a huge impact to your portfolio, but your downside is capped to that small amount. Um, and, with, and with respect to picking, you know, so I, I kind of gave you this analogy of the internet in 1995. And 
the response I often get to that is, how do I know I'm getting Google and not getting Yahoo? How am I getting, how do I know I'm getting Facebook and not MySpace? And the thing is that it is hard to pick winners. It is hard to pick winners. But one way to ensure you get good exposure is to actually buy a diversified basket. And in this diversified basket, the way that we create our basket is by market capitalization. So we say kind of what are the biggest cryptocurrencies out there? And if you happen to pick uh, Yahoo and not Google, well, if it starts to drop, we rebalance out of it. And as Google comes up, we rebalance into it. And that strategy, if you'd employed that strategy in 1995, maybe you wouldn't have got Amazon on the day it IPO'd, but you'd have still done amazingly well. It would have still provided you huge returns. And it takes away the pressure of having to pick to actually pick winners. From an investor's perspective, what is the minimum value of investment and time period one will need to stay invested within the Jaltech crypto products? So the minimum investment value is 10,000 Rand. And um, that's because we want to set it at a low enough place where people can dip their toe in. A lot of people are afraid of the space and they want to get a little taste. Uh, thereafter, investors can actually sign a debit order and what's well, called dollar cost averaging where they invest the same amount every month. That way, it avoids the pressure of having to time the market. Well, thank you very much for being with us this 20th of October, 2021. We'll be back in your company again tomorrow, same time, same place. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News. Biz News.